Today's episode is sponsored by Discovered Magazine. Discovered is an international print counterculture magazine encompassing the best of music, art, skateboarding, and anything with a punk ethos. Listeners get 10% off a yearly subscription using the code FIRSTEVER when they visit store.dscvrd.co. Discovered just released not one but three covers for readers to choose from, summing up the best artists to break through this year. On the covers, One Step Closer, See You Space Cowboy, and Chubby and the Gang. One more time, that's store.dscvrd.co. Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Baum, and happy holidays. This is a holiday episode. It's uh, well, it's kind of a holiday episode. I'll explain in a moment. Um, if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. My guest this week is one of my favorite people I've met through music. We've been friends for a very long time, probably 15 years or so. Mr. Kevin Devine. He's a singer-songwriter. He's very, very, very prolific. Lots of lots of records and EPs. He's also a member of Bad Books with Andy Hull from Manchester Orchestra. And uh, he played in a great band called The Miracle of 86 way back when. Um, but the reason this is a special holiday episode is Kevin has an incredible song from uh, his record, Make the Clocks Move, called Splitting Up Christmas, which he so kindly performs at the end of the show. Made my, made, made my, uh, it made my damn day that he was down to do it. Before we get to that, let me, uh, let me pitch you on a couple things. One is, uh, if you have not subscribed to the show, maybe this is your first time here. I would really appreciate it. You can do it on uh, Apple, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this. If you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing the show over on Apple or iTunes, you know what I'm saying? That would mean a lot. Spotify just recently added a feature where you can rate shows on Spotify as well. Please do it. It would it would help me out. It would help the show get some attention, blah, blah, blah. Also, I got a Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon right now, you can hear a bonus episode with Kevin where he answers questions that were submitted by subscribers. It's really awesome. Also, for the first time ever, there's a video. Uh, whenever I do these podcasts, uh, we do them over video. Um, I haven't added the feature of, of watching video just because I've always been a little archaic being like, you know, this is a podcast. That's what people listen to. Uh, but this one is uh, is special. So what what uh, if you go on the if you subscribe to the Patreon, you can watch Kevin perform the song "Splitting Up Christmas" there right now. Um, but I think that's it. I think that's all I'm going to pitch you on. Um, Kevin is amazing, and uh, if you haven't checked out his records before, I, I can't recommend them enough. We talk about his record "Put Your Ghost to Rest" quite a lot, and uh, it's probably my favorite from him. But it's it's like picking kids. There's there's so many great records that he's put out. Um, but I hope you enjoy, and I hope you have a nice holiday season. Here's my conversation with Kevin Devine. 
<laughs> oh boy, uh, Kevin, it is so nice to see you. It is it's so awesome so to nice see you. to see you. I was trying uh, to think of the last time I saw you in real life, and I don't know if this is true, but it's either this can't be true. I because that was like five or six years ago. When I came out there and we did, we, you and I got together and hung out and talked and we played at the Echo and then we went out for like pizza before it or something like that. I remember you playing me like, you can excise this if this never came out, a Nirvana cover. The yes. Touche. Yes. And yeah. we were driving around in the car, just catching up. And then there was another time though that you were out here with me without you and we went for pizza after the right. Poussin Rouge. Does that Which sound was- right? Yes, and that was in 2014. Which that is, can't be. That so can't be right. Is no. it really so, that it's that long? I want to say it might be because God, when Bad Books played out here. Oh, no. When Bad Books played the, that's what it the was. hotel rooftop. Hotel yes, rooftop. that's right. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, right. Yes, God, that was such a strange thing that I, I kind of feel like I there's a lot of that I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. And, that, yeah. and I mean, even so, that was before that record had come out, I want to say. Yeah, it was say. probably about, it was June- it was probably about nine months before COVID. Yeah. Right. And it was, yeah. Which, which also, I know we don't have to do too much of this because everybody's got the same things to say about this, but it is kind of insane that that was two years ago, yeah. two and a half years ago, because really it's like, we're coming up on two years of everything just being like, who knows the last time I saw anyone, totally. unless you just toured. I mean, I know you've actually done touring. I haven't been on tour yet. So maybe you saw people through that but but it's like yes and also no not the same you know like every like everyone's most situation it's like covid protocol stuff just like you know yes no no one backstage all that sort of stuff and so and also you don't want to be out in the crowd so it's it's if you see someone it's like if the schedule is aligned to where it's like hey can we just do a quick outside hello yeah yeah it feels weird you know, I, I don't have to turn this around on you immediately, but I am a 20 years removed from a journalism degree. So sometimes I like to I love it. <laughs> flex. What's that like for you as a performer? Because I feel like there's a part of your performance that is actively in the yes. audience sometimes, or, or like in engaging with them in a way where they're part. And, and, and maybe I'm part of that in a way that's a bit more like philosophical or energetic, but I'm not like standing in there with them, nor are they up there with me usually screaming at me so has that changed the shows so one of the reasons we took the tour that we did so we did a support tour for thrice yes that's what i that's right yes and the reason we did that uh a big part of the reason was like uh that'll be in rooms that um i won't really have opportunity to be up in the crowd anyway because there's a big barrier and there's like a big divide anyway and also like for for safety's sake it is what it is and like over the years I've just had to, you know, get my chops up as like, I need to be good at just like performing without crowd interaction. A hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yes. So uh, years of support tours, you know, really brings you there where you're like, I'm playing to people who don't maybe care that much. And I have to just play the 100%. songs. hundred percent. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. Which is a good, yeah, that makes sense. But I was thinking, so right. So you haven't done a tour yet where it's you. We had one off day show where we played the grog shop and that. Oh, I'm, wow. I'm assuming you've yeah. been at the grog shop. And I yeah, have that, a great many times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that was not a, uh, that, that was, we did like proof of vaccination and all of that, but that was like, yeah, there's no barrier. That's an intimate little venue. And uh, it was yeah, wild. They're right there. They're yeah. right there. Yeah. Yeah. So that one was like, 
Well, we're certainly rolling the dice tonight, boys, but uh, it went fine. And we and we was it both like super fun and affirming and also anxiety inducing and nerve wracking? All of those things, but yeah. mostly, mostly exciting just because um, we've had, you know, we like many other people had put out a record that we hadn't got a chance to play live totally. yet. Yes. Yes, you so, did. And then like playing those new songs on the thrice tour though we were fortunate to have pockets of people every night who were down right like you still don't really know what your direct audience is going to react to those new songs so like getting to play those new songs at our show in like an intimate environment like was very affirming where it's like yeah. okay this yeah. feels cool like pe- like hearing people you know how it feels like hearing people sing words back to a new record is like never going to get old you're like, yeah, oh. that's that's like a what's it called? Inexhaustible energy resource. Yeah. You're always yeah. Oh it's <laughs> a perfect wait. way to put it. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, I got a lot of time on my hands to <laughs> think <laughs> so, of ways to say things, but But you just played shows this last weekend. And I was thinking about that with the support thing. I was I opened for stars, that Montreal mm-hmm. arts and crafts band. I guess they've probably been fifteen to eighteen years removed from arts and crafts, but that's what I think of them as mm-hmm. uh, that whole world. And we've played shows together, you know, as you know, there's a, as it's actually a feature of our relationship. It's a weird thing over the, over the long enough arc of time. Like I've played with stars in 2004, five, 10, 21. Oh, wow. And so like, I know them, but also, and I really like them and there's kind of a shared sensibility not so much in how the music sounds but in i I like how they do what they do and they are lifers they're people who are you know 48 whatever they are and they've been doing this a long time and they'll be doing it a long time and um but also it's like i know them and i don't in a way because i it's like long stretches where you don't see them and then you see them and you're like but there's also this instant shorthand when you do because it's like we've done this together um and it was, I've only played four shows since the pandemic. And the first two were headlining and then these. It was the first support shows in two and two years, two years, almost exactly. And so it was also that thing where I was like, oh, right, this thing where, which I've done a lot of, maybe more of even than headlining, maybe even split. I don't know. but But a lot of it where you're like, there may be 15% of this audience that is aware of me. There may be 8% of this audience that is like a fan. And, and then there's a whole bunch of people. And, you know, I'm, I'll be 42 on Sunday and you get to be like a perpetually new band in that environment, right. which I kind of like. I know other people don't. And I don't always like it because not every support show is created equally. There's certainly <laughs> sports shows where you're like, this crowd fucking hates me, you know, and and yeah. that's. But they weren't, this was the polar opposite. Their audience was like, you know, I was a solo act at those shows and it was like pin drop, silent, clapping in response to lyrics, to songs, like things they'd never, I was like, oh, these people are like really listening. And it was also, yeah, it was also cool because I, and they were really wonderful from the stage about having me there, which I, which was very nice, you know, but that was after they, that was, you know they didn't get on stage before me and say like, please be nice to Kevin. Yeah. Well, um, what I, the reason yeah. I said, I mean, the reason I said interesting was, was I wonder if in this pre COVID or I don't want to, or not pre COVID in this, I don't even want to current say post COVID in this current yes, yes, phase yes. of in, hybridization. In this, <laughs> yeah. If, if maybe audiences are just um, realizing how lucky they are to be in a room 
and I think that's a beautiful thought. And maybe there's just like the look, we're going to be quiet and enjoy this music because we haven't been able to do this. Like in case, because I was, I was going to bring it up at some point in this interview, but like, I'm sure when you first started doing solo stuff, you had to deal with loud audiences and talking and stuff like I that. Mean, so it's certainly, still you deal with. I still deal with it. I was actually just thinking maybe in just looking at you, thinking of California and the support shows make me think of the last support tour I did in November of 2019 was with Get Up Kids. More people who I've literally, I think I met them in like 1996 for the first time. And we've done, I've, I got to know them more later. I would say 2004, five, when their band was like about to break up for the first time, kind of. Yeah. But um, I guess they haven't broken up again. The one time they did. <laughs> and uh, we did shows, to, we've done shows together over, over many years. But, and their sh- audience was great on those shows, except Chain Reaction in Anaheim, which I love. I love that place. And I was so excited to go back to that place because I, I just, there's so few of those yeah. places now that that do what that place does. And I, I think it's a real gem. And that audience was like, oh, it was really like um, from song two. And there was, again, people that were, yeah. and most of the shows, people were really there. But from the second song, it was just like, oh, tonight's going to be like Wage and War. And yeah. I, I want to say that Chain Reaction has a historically bad uh, track record. Of of that. that, I remember seeing Owen open for Me Without You. Mm. Uh, wow, that's a crazy tour. Yeah, it was a long time, obviously for, for ages and ages ago. But uh, yeah, like to the point where you know, uh, basically gave up and well, and, I think- and walked off, and then like Aaron addressed it when they went out to start the set because I, you know, I was even just talking about this. Uh, last night with uh i went to go see this uh, my friends in this band called soul glow and uh they were saying how they went on they they played a show with the men's zingers and they're like a very abrasive hardcore band and like they yeah yeah men's zingers and he was like the audience like there was a divide where they some of them clearly clearly fucking hated us being there mm. and like we reminded them like the reason we're here is because the menzingers asked us to be here i know it's such a funny exchange not that you expect that seems so intuitive to me. Mm-hmm. And yet I also wonder if there's an aspect of that that's a little like aspirational or inside baseball for me to expect that people who are just like at a show or even thinking of things on that level. Like some people are, some people yeah. totally are. And then some people are just like, especially, and this not to get too yeah bullshitty, lost in atmosphere too quickly here, but I feel like maybe especially in an increasing time where fuck COVID and everything, but where like, People have never been more endlessly entertained by a device that lives in their pocket while simultaneously being more perpetually bored by the extent of that entertainment. Yeah. So I also feel like people going to shows, it's like sometimes I think there are people who are really attuned to that. And sometimes I think you're just like another thing in the wheel of entertainment. True. And so there's a moment where I don't know if they're thinking like, oh, yeah, fuck. Um, get up kids ask this guy to be here maybe i should and also not everyone's gonna like what you do but that doesn't mean they have to like actively be yelling to their (laughs) friend throughout the entirety of it there's been lots of bands i've watched and been like this isn't for me or lots of plays i've seen or whatever and not been like fuck you (laughs) you know or that's not what was you know what i'm saying yeah Yeah, or even or not yeah not even even just like does anyone want a soda (laughs) (laughs) um kevin this show's all about first experiences um 
And when I talk to musicians, I, the first thing I usually ask them is, uh, do you remember when you were young, like the first thing musically that you connected with? And I sort of add like a little act, extra extra point to this question where maybe it's not so much something that was being played in the house by your parents, but something that maybe you found on your own and connected Like for with. you. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. there's a whole wing of that I could talk about with my family but I can tell you, I mean, they're cliched answers, but that's how we find music. I don't, totally. it's not like, it's like, I stumbled into a Velvet Underground concert <laughs> when I was 10. Um, I, um, I was in Earliesville, Virginia, where my, my cousins, my aunt and uncle and cousins lived growing up. My aunt and uncle are still there outside Charlottesville. And I was seven. And in my cousins, he played bass and he had all these like blacklight felt like Iron Maiden posters, Eddie the, you know, mm -hmm. and he liked like hard rock music, some metal. And he, his, the local rock radio station was on. This was, this would have been the summer of 1987. And they played Sweet Child of Mine. I'd never heard that. And when the riff, the opening riff, feels funny to call it a riff because it's so high up on the neck, but it is a riff, that right, figure sure. that, um, and I've talked about this with him and he's like, no, you remember it correctly. I remember like I was standing up in his room. He was like on his bed and I was like just doing stuff in his room. And I remember like stopping and I like didn't move for the rest of the song. And then at the end of the song, I like turned to him and I was like, do they play it again? And he's yeah. like, they'll play it again in like an hour or whatever. And I like waited around with him until they played it again. Yeah. That was the first thing I was like Guns N' Roses and it's a bummer because Guns N' Roses become something so per, like um, grotesque and probably even were then, you know what I mean? I yeah, was like sure. seven years old, but that was the first thing that I was like, these are the coolest people in the world. Like yeah. I thought that was like, and then I was a, the thing though, but even so my family was there a little bit. He was there to facilitate that. Mm -hmm. I am for better and for worse, it's just the truth. I am the exact age target demo. I was one of those kids that was like 11, about to be 12, sitting there after school watching MTV. And actually Axl Rose, they gave him when Use Your Illusion came out, like an hour long show where he like talked about bands he liked. Oh, wow. And he was like, this was like right in that space where those records all came out in fall of 2000 of uh, 91. And he was like, this is really cool band from Seattle that I love. It's on our label and uh, they're called Nirvana. And he played smells like teen spirit. I remember being like, that was, that was the first time that ever where there was no one around. And I just saw something and I was like, it, it did feel, I don't have the, I didn't have the apparatus or vocabulary for it at 12, but it was what I did feel was like, oh, that's not like these other things. And I just want to hear it again. And the culture obliged because I got to hear it. I'm still hearing it all the time, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, that was Nirvana was Guns N' Roses was probably the first thing that was like mine. That wasn't like Michael Jackson or the Beatles or Joni Mitchell or Dylan or Bruce Springsteen or whatever was on in my house with my brothers and my mom. Guns N' Roses first. And then Nirvana was really the thing that was like, oh, that's like, that's like for me. Like no one even showed me that. That's like, I just got to see it. And then, you know, you know, the rest were still yeah. here. You and I are kind of here talking partly because of that. So largely yeah. here talking because of that. So anyway, yeah. That's I remember I always I always think about I I uh I had Guns N' Roses which one had 
Was User Illusion one with November Rain or was it two? That was one. It was one. Yeah, I could tell you the track listings to both of those (laughs) records, probably. Yeah, maybe with some errors now. It's been a a long time, but yeah. I I remember that was a cassette that I somehow got my hands on because I think it was Parental Advisory. That 100% was. There's some fucked up stuff on those records. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. And I remember that was a cassette. I've talked about this on the show before where like I had to... I knew I would get in trouble if my mom read through the lyrics. So I like I like would slide the cassette case underneath my bed and put out a cassette that was safe, like a Genesis cassette. Or so something. smart. Look at and, you, cagey. Yeah. And then I would have my headphones in and be like, that's what that's what mom thinks I'm listening to. But it's like, love it. Yeah. You were you were uh, you were a uh, great subterfuge. That's good. <laughs> my I did one of those things. How old are you? I'm 38. That's we're, right. Okay. Pretty close. Pretty close. There's a, do you remember Columbia house? The thing where you would oh, yeah. send away. Yeah. So I did that when it was like, you know, up front, you paid a penny and got like 12 cassettes and then it was like, but they got you on the hook for 10 bucks or 12 bucks a month or whatever it was. Right. Um, and my, my, I defer what this was 1989 and I got like Dr. Feel Good and Look What the Cat Dragged In and all these like cock rock bands right. or hair metal bands. And, and also like Debbie Gibson, Millie Vanilli, like whatever pop music was, you know. And my mom went through, and my mom's like a child of the 60s, like folk music, uh, you know, 60s pop music, 70s, like Laurel Canyon. She's not like someone who didn't have like her own experience of things that at the, at, at certain moments were like countercultural in their way. Of course. But she was raising a kid who was eight or nine and she read through the Dr. Feelgood liner <laughs> notes. And when I came home, she was like, you absolutely cannot have these, you know? And I was like, yeah, devastated. Cause I was like, but but they rock, you know, huh? Smiley Crew. Yeah. They're these like even at that age, like they're like cartoon characters. This isn't yes. real. Like, don't worry. But but it does have probably does have some uh, negative long arcing impacts <laughs> to be like exposed to that level of noxious horseshit. But uh <laughs> but yeah, those would be the ones. I would I, I mean I know they're but yeah, Guns and Roses and then Nirvana. And then it was that that like real heartbreaking moment where you kind of realized like these two there was a point where it was like, oh, these guys hate each other. That's and what I was kind of, trying to, that, yeah. that's what the first thing I thought of where I was like, it's interesting that Axl Rose introduced Nirvana because they have this like historic blowout at an MTV. Uh, well, I think wars. part of what informs his eventual feelings about that is that he was like an early in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. He fucking loved them. Like, I guess whenever David Geffen or whoever gave him that record in the summer before it came out, he was, I guess he was one of the people that was, he would wear like Nirvana hats. Like he was he wore a Nirvana, yeah. yeah. And then he kept asking them to go on tour with, they were, they got asked to open all of the Use Your Illusion US tours. They said no. And then the Guns N' Roses Metallica tour, the Faith No More event ended up opening oh, yeah. and they said no. And then he asked them to play at his birthday party. And they said no. And then finally, Kurt Cobain said, like, they, I guess he kept telling his management and agents, like, you have to just tell him we fucking hate him and we're never going to do it. And they were like, we're not going to do that. And so that's when he started going in the press and being like, we fucking hate them and we're never going to go, you know? And then, yeah. then it became a- Axel couldn't let that pass without being Axel. So there you go. Yeah. Wow. 
Wow. I'm a use right. I'm a treasure trove of useless Guns N' Roses and Nirvana trivia. So. I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, so um, let me ask you this. What was your what was your first concert? This sounds like a lie, but the first the first concert I think I ever yeah, I think it's the first concert I ever went to because I don't think I ever went to like a concert concert with my mom before this. I went with this Mary Galliotto and her younger sister Louise and their mom to see REM no at, the, uh, at the Nassau Coliseum on the Monster Tour. I was 14 and I think that's the first like concert I ever went to see. I had not been to like punk shows, I don't even think yet at that point. It's possible. So that depends how you want to split the atom. Like it's possible that I'd been to some like local show or something. It's possible. We had played my band had played two club shows. I think when I was 14, a place called the rock palace on Staten Island. Uh And I think it's possible those happened before I went to this REM show, but I wasn't allowed to like go to shows yet on Staten. Like it wasn't like going to shows at 14 and bars, but somehow we got to play two of them. And my dad came anyway, but um, REM, REM on monster was the first concert I ever saw. On this last tour we did, uh, we went on a deep dive reading about REM because I was I was playing because um, they had just reissued new uh, new adventures yes. in Hi Fi, yeah. And uh, so we were just like, you know, you get in the van and you just start like talking about a band for a long time. And something that I didn't realize, we all didn't realize, uh, which I'm sure you clearly do, I didn't know that they did not tour during the height of their success. So that Monster like, Tour was their first tour back. Yeah, right. They so they what is it? They don't go on tour. They they toured at a time, but they don't tour automatic for the people, right? That's what no, they happens. Don't, dude, they don't tour out of time. They or don't tour, automatic. Yeah, or automatic for the people. They don't tour between like 1989 and, and 94. Or was Monster 95? Monster was 94. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah. that whole time they were just like, nah, we're good. Wow. And like the fact that also out of time and... Uh, automatic for the people are one year apart is also it's just insane. insane to me. And it was like, their two biggest records Two like, yeah, they're, I mean, if they never played a show or wrote another song, they probably could have not played a show or written another song in 1993 and they would still be fine for the rest of their lives. I know. Like, no, well, absolutely. A hundred percent. But that, that's really wild. And I, what I do remember is when they played, I knew it was, I knew they didn't tour automatic. I didn't know it was both of those records. That's kind of, kind of amazing, actually very cool. But, um, I do remember it was during, you know, his like sexuality was, was, it was, um, a matter of some interest. It was like fluid and people weren't, he, he, he was not way ahead um, of time being public. Yeah. Yes. But he also was not, uh, like out in a public way because I think his sexuality is more fluid. I don't know that he identifies as, as you know, any specific right. thing. I don't know, but, um, I think he just says he's attracted to people. Right. 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 And so I think what in nine, what I remember in 1992 was because also the, the, um, the content of automatic for the people, people were, there was a whole thing that people thought he had contracted AIDS mm. and that he was like, they weren't touring because he was in poor health. And like, you would see him in, in certain environments and he was like kind of gaunt and kind of look, but it was, sort of just like and and he never said anything to dispel that because i guess it would almost be like like condescend it's almost like i'm not gonna like like 
yeah, dignify that with an answer, almost like, what the fuck are you talking about? We just don't want to be on tour. Right. But I do remember that. I remember being like, there was a little rumor, like Michael Stipe has AIDS. And it was like, right. what? Um, I, I think we even read that maybe uh, in 89 or 88, I, I could be misquoting, but I almost want to say that maybe a member of their touring party, maybe not a band member, probably a touring party, like passed away. Oh, wow. Tour or something. And maybe they were just like, yeah, we don't want to tour. Like we're good. That would be a good reason. Yeah. So not that you need. Yeah. Yeah. There can be plenty of good reasons, but yeah. I was just, I mean, we, when we read that, like we, we couldn't let it go. We just kept talking about it for like 20 minutes. We're like, could it's, you imagine? Well, it's pretty unorthodox. Yeah, it's, you know what it's I mean? Incredible. Like, I guess that, and especially once, you know, what's crazy too, though, with the Nirvana thing. And there was reasons for this, obviously like that record comes out in September 91 and you know, does what it does. Yeah. They kind of like, don't do much in 1992. They do like, uh, like after, because it basically, because he was in a particular place for most of that year with his relationships, drugs and alcohol. And they were going to have a kid. I mean, mostly drugs. I don't know if alcohol was a big deal, but it's even like when they go do Reading and they do that, like Europe tour around that, that's kind of like the only touring they do when their records like the coolest thing in music that year. And it was just sort of like, they might've played like 30 shows. That was a band that played like 200 shows a year for five years before yeah. that. And then it happens. And it was just like, that was for different reasons. That was obviously for like, I don't think he was available to sure. do it, but yeah. I mean, it's, it's so wild to think. I mean, it's just, it speaks to just also like how different, things were then to where they are now like oh my god uh, i just interviewed uh ricky from me without you oh and, uh, wonderful and, a very alive human being yeah absolutely yeah. i love 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 him to death and yes um you know uh one of the things that he, he and i i mean like a, a thing that comes up a lot also is just like oh no actually it wasn't with ricky it was with laura jane grace uh we were talking also about a very alive human being yeah totally <laughs> yeah. we're talking about how how you know, things move at such, such a wildly different pace now. And like, I remember, uh, for alternative press, like in 2016, I got the opportunity to interview Jonathan Davis from corn for the magazine. Oh, I kind of remember maybe talking to you not long before you were going to do that actually. Oh, yeah. Something was, about, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So like for me personally, after Kurt passed, and like, uh, uh, like a lot of people, I, I remember in that mo- in 94 being like, I don't know what I lo- like my, like music is dead to me. I don't yeah, know what yeah, is gonna, the day what's going to get died. me next. Yep. And then corn entered my life and I became like a huge metal kid. Right. Oh, so, I kind of love that. Yeah. yeah. So, cause it was like, cause that first corn album came out in 94. So, and it was I like, had no clue they were out that early. I thought yeah. they were like a much later thing. Wow. Okay. So like it was literally like Kurt died and then I had like a breath and then corn came and I was like, wow, I guess this is my life now. Um, (laughs) And so like when I got to interview him, I had all these, you know, it was, it was tough to think of questions to ask him about his current career. Whereas like all I wanted to ask him about was like the early 90s stuff. Cause that's where my head was. Sure. But what I'm getting at is when they broke, like broke out, uh, was on their record, follow the leader, which is in 98. Right, And then when I, I was going through and researching for the interview and looking and being like, wait, their follow-up record 
was in 99 one year later that's like, crazy what like they were the biggest band on like trl and all that sort of stuff so i'm like why would you not milk that and tour that album for like four i know years? i know what is strange and i mean that also speaks like you're exactly to what you're saying the industrial differences at that point too like all right come on but i also think the um it does make me reflect on i was a, like in freshman and sophomore year junior year, I guess then of college, sophomore and junior year. And they were like, what a weird time in like yeah. popular music. Cause you had like the thing about a band, I never knew much about those bands because by that point I was, that is a place where four years is a big difference. Yeah. Cause by that point yeah, I was already whatever, like the, the more indie rock, less alternative rock direction that nirvana leads you into you know what like the splinter from there was like there's the part that you i definitely owned bush cassettes Mm -hmm. and owned the stone temple pilots records and owned all that but also i did get into like sonic youth and super chunk and arches a loaf and all of those things through the nirvana lens helium and all this stuff pavement and then that eventually begat like Cat Power and Bell and Sebastian and Elliot Smith. And then that was its whole next thing of mind blowing, obsessive, whatever. Yeah. But there wasn't a lot of like corn, like that stuff sure. was something that was happening in a different frequency for, and that was also talking about what we first started talking about being like 18, 19. There was no way for me. I felt to like both Elliot Smith and corn. It was just sort of like <laughs> yeah. not, which is speaks more to the specific, point in your life you're at and whatever else but in retrospect like corn is a weird band and when you look at that that was like next to like christina aguilera and like backstreet boys and um yeah. it makes less sense to me even than like limp biscuit does or something because that guy's a bit in a weird way that guy's a little bit more of like a pop culture icon. Yeah. Guy, there's yeah. A, and he's a little, he's like a little more approachable, even like physically. I could see someone thinking that guy's like cute. Right. Whereas like corn looked fucking crazy. And yeah. uh, you know, there was, it's just a weird thing that that music was like, you know, that would be like number four on TRL and number three would be like the Backstreet Boys Total, or something. What a time. Let me give you this funny little piece of trivia that, that just, that blew my mind completely. So we, our last record we did, we recorded with Ross Robinson, yes, the guy who yep. did the Corn records and the yep. Slipknot records and all that. So, amongst many other things, yeah. So, this is going to blow your mind because it completely leveled me. I know you're a Leonard Cohen guy. I'm yes. a huge Leonard Cohen guy. Right? Yes, I know. So, when we went to go work with Ross the first time, we did like a tryout session, like a will this relationship work? And, ah, yeah, yeah. And because uh, I was really, I mean, me personally, I was like terrified of this guy because he's a very storied producer yeah 100 percent. so we meet with him and he's and you know I'm t- and we finally it's just he and i and he's and we're in the vocal booth and he's like he pulls out this microphone and he's like he's like he's like all right this is the he's like this is the microphone i've recorded every single record i've done on this, it's this wow microphone. and i was like holy shit wow that's insane i was like every single record he's like every single record i've recorded on this microphone and i go what's the story with it where did it come from and he goes well it was originally uh nick caves and Whoa. uh he's like hey, he's like but there's he's like it belonged to the studio i used to record out of and he was like so many people record on ross does not know me at all yet we're just getting right. to know each other right and he goes lots of records have been recorded on this he's like uh leonard cohen sang the future on this microphone holy shit 
And my jaw just like fell out of my face. Oh, that's like, a pretty wonderful thing to have gotten to do in your like, life in music. That's so cool. Like I, my body, like I left my body in that moment. I was like, yeah. I'm standing with Ross Robinson, the guy who kind of yes. shaped a lot of my, a lot of my years of my life. And he's just telling me that this is a microphone sung on through the person who shaped a lot of my very adult life. Like, I think that is... What? Uh, the fact that you are a person who allows yourself to be, um, a fan of the things that shape you enough to see how cool that is and to experience like the, the gift and privilege of being like part of a lineage where like the thing you end up making puts you in a position to sing into that microphone. The fact there are two kinds of people. There's a lots of kinds of people, but there's the kind of person who thinks like, totally, I deserve that. And then there's the kind of person who's like, holy shit, this is fucking insane. And like, feels like, um, a sense of like, uh, almost like, um, both joy and also like a solemn sense of like, oh my God, that's incredible. That's I'd always err on the side of that. I'd always rather be the person who can have his mind blown by being able to be part of any lineage like that. What an amazing story. That's yeah. so cool. And just and it's just crazy. It's also funny to just think that like even, yeah, like Jonathan Davis screaming into that microphone, you know, like, that, like I mean the also Leonard yeah. Cohen like the fact that the the vo- like air from those mouths have been all in all in the same thing. Profound, <laughs> profound absurdity to put yeah. those yeah. That's and, and also kind of amazing to be like a nexus point yeah. where those two things meet is yeah. kind of amazing too. Like that you are somebody who would get in that room and have both of those things be meaningful to you is kind of an amazing thing too. The, it was, it was just the last thing I'll say about it. I was like, so how did you end up with this thing? Cause if it belonged to the studio that you used mm. to record out of and he goes, well, that studio was folding around the time I got to record. He did a cure album. Oh yeah. Like, I remember that. Yeah. That's yeah. titled cure album in the yep. 2000s. And I was like, uh, and he's like this, the record company basically asked me, what do we need to get you to do this album? And he goes, I need you to buy me that microphone. Wow. And it's like some $20,000 microphone. And they were like, okay. Cause it was at the time when labels just had all of the money. So. Yeah. Easy. I can do that. It's <laughs> also good on him for having the presence of mind to know the answer to that question. I feel like I'm the kind of person in those moments where someone will ask me something like that. And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, pizza. Pizza's good. <laughs> right. Like the fact that he was like, I know exactly what it is. I need that microphone. I need that microphone. That's exactly. really amazing. That's it's good. So it's so so cool. So uh when did you start playing guitar? Was that like around that same time? Like the the 1990, 90, It would yeah. have been pr- between Guns N' Roses and Nirvana. Still Guns N' Roses kind of. Um I was in sixth grade. I was in actually weirdly through know just the way life shakes out. I, I was, I was in a, uh, junior high school. That's like five minute walk from where I live right now. Um, I, uh, I was, yeah, McKinley junior high school and they had, you could do art, vocal or guitar, which I'm sure does not exist in most public schools today. This was like it's fall of 1990. And I took a guitar class and like 20 of us in a auditorium would get these like beater nylon string acoustic guitars. And we would learn like love me tender by Elvis. And we would learn like Feliz Navidad. 
and stuff like that. Yeah. And then I moved. We moved in the middle of my sixth grade year to Staten Island. And for Christmas that year, I got like a shitty little red, no, not like off brand. I don't even remember what it was called, like electric guitar, single pickup and like a battery powered little amp. And I would, that was, and then I would just play by myself. And I took lessons in like sixth and seventh grade, I think on Staten Island, once rustic music center and lane music center on Staten Island. And that was the extent of my like training, formal training was like this class for three months and then some lessons. And the lessons were always like me asking the guy if I could like learn, you know, uh, what's that song by poison, uh, talk dirty to me and him being like, I don't want to, can I, and he was more like a guy who was like, you know, 1990, if he was, if I was 12, 11, he would have been in his twenties. He was more like a Zeppelin Van Halen guy. And he was more like, that shit's crap. Like, why don't you learn this? And then the Nirvana thing, again, not to always, not all roads leading back to Nirvana, but one of the things that was transformative for me was I had like a little microphone and a little amp for the mic and a little microphone and a little amp, I mean, a little amp for the guitar, excuse me, and a mic stand. And, uh, I would go into my room or downstairs in Staten Island and I could like the Nirvana stuff, what was different to the guns and roses stuff or whatever else was like, I could play all of those songs and I could kind of like listen to the tape and like try it and be like, that's not it. Stop, rewind. That's not it. Stop, rewind. Oh, that's it. You know what I mean? Like the power, cause those, especially that record, it's deceptive, but it's like children's music made into powerful punk pop songs and um so that was once i once they showed up it was also like i also felt like i learned songwriting through nirvana because it was like oh you do this this and this and that's how the this chord makes sense with this chord and this melody makes sense with this melody and then when the guitar solos were like what he sang played on the guitar i was like oh now i can play guitar solo too so that was like the at-home training was nirvana and then that led to like those like books where you could like get the tablature like the couldn't book, really yeah. read music but yeah and I, I could then i could fuck around a little bit with like i had like guitar world magazine i would buy every month and um but that was that was yeah i was 11 and then and the training was really pretty minimal most of it was like at home in a basement for six hours like listening to things and figuring out were and that's pretty, still kind of how it is but were you pretty quick to be able to like catch something by ear and find it I, I don't know the speed. You know, it's funny. It's like you, you, you do what you do and you don't always know actually how it compares with other people until like, I I feel like kind of later, I will say, I do think one of the things I have some facility with, with music is picking things out by ear. I can fairly, and even with stuff like I'm looking, cause there's a framed picture my girlfriend gave me last year. There's like with Elliot, there's like a, that was its own education and also like led back to the Beatles and folk and country because with Elliot, I could sort of figure it out, but then there'd always be something that I was like, I have no idea what the fuck just happened there. And then you'd also find out like you were figuring it out, but you were figuring out versions of it that were like the like um, windows for dummies version. And then you'd actually sit down and like really see what he was doing. And you're like, Oh, I wasn't doing that. Like the voicings and, Um, and then you do figure some of that out with a little guidance from watching him and you're like, 
oh, you learn a different kind of songwriting. You're like, oh, this chord instead of this chord is way more interesting and there's more tension in it and blah, 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 blah. But that was all by year two. That was all like getting either or in the self-titled record and sitting in a dorm room or when everyone was asleep and being like, oh, okay. Like, you know, and some things like Needle in the Hay, you could figure out, but like Clementine, it was like, that's a weird tuning. What the fuck's he doing there? You know, like there's the ear thing. I think I do have some facility for, um, although I'm still always in like a mild panic when I have to learn something and then it is always okay, but I'm always like, um, this is going to be the thing, like someone else's music or something. I'm going to be right. like, this is it. Well, and it's you never have, like that. You, don't be modest for a damn second. Cause you have the best party trick in the entire world where someone can yell out a song at you. <laughs> you can, some, you seem to know how to play every song that's ever been written, which is a great, well, that's party a trick. wonderful. Do you remember the band ultimate fake book? Yes. That's like what that that's that that name makes me think of that. Like to that's wonderful that it registers like that. To me, it's like there's a certain it's that thing. It's like there's a certain mode of songwriting where it's like if you know how to play "Let Her Cry" by Hootie and the Blowfish, Uh which is just knowing how to play "Knocking on Heaven's Door" effectively, Uh then you sort of know how to play four hundred other songs, and you can kind of be like. Oh, this is the story of a girl that cried a river and drowned the whole world. That's just uh, let her cry, knocking on heaven's door, but you move a few things around. Like that's the party trick. The trick is, I will accept that on some level it is from like however many thousands of hours of this practice that you're like, if someone's like, you can kind of hear like, I don't have perfect pitch or anything like that, but I can sort of identify key quickly. Uh huh. And then you're like, well, if it's a pop song, it's probably this kind of chord progression in roughly this kind of order. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'll, I will accept that's, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> whatever it is, it's in there. It's so funny when you, when you find, when you do catch those things where you're like, oh my God, this is literally like, um, years ago we did a replacements cover, right? Yeah. Uh, and we did Unsatisfied, but we like played it upbeat. And then when yeah. we were, when we it's were hearing song. just when we're hearing just the audio back of us playing it faster and we're like kind of with like distortion guitars and yep. all that sort of stuff. We're like, this is learn to fly from the Foo Fighters. Oh, totally. Like you just like, you can literally sing, look at the time. Like, it's like that. You totally like, could with that. That's true. <laughs> and it just blew. I was like, wow, good on Foo Fighters for somehow not being able to notice it when you're hearing it without vocals. But wow. But I feel like there's gotta be, hundreds of thousands of examples of people writing songs and being like, I have no idea. I swear this is a little different, <laughs> but no, he maybe he's in the back of my head. Cause you brought him up earlier. Yeah. There's a story. Mike Kinsella told me on tour once that he finished a record and submitted it to, I guess, polyvinyl. I think he's mm-hmm. kind of been a lifer with polyvinyl. Right. And he was like, he wanted to call it something. And when he submitted it, they were like, you can't call your record that. And he was like, why? It's a good title. And they were like, it's the same title as one of the 10 most well-known records of all time. And he never would tell me which, what it was, but I'm like, so what I, I mean, I'm just, I'm like, it would literally be like, he had like a brain fart and he handed in a record and he was like, let's call it like appetite for destruction. And they were like, (laughs) no, what are you talking about? And he was like, no, I, cause I think that fits the themes of that. And they were like, right. it's the fucking guns and roses. Like you can't call it or like, never mind, whatever. Yeah. Um, 
And I've always, I, and, I, and then I, I think he was fucking with me later. Cause so like sometime later I was like, what was it? And he's like, I don't remember that happening. I'm like, Oh my God. Either you were fucking with me then or you're fucking with me now. And the first one seemed so detailed that I was like, I don't think that's, I don't uh, think that really happened. Did that, but make it, you think, did that make you think of it? Cause of the replacements having, yeah, ex- exactly. Right. Yes. But I think there's so many songs that, that you, I mean, you know, it's, especially if you're moving around and like, folk or punk or blues or rock traditions it's like it's the same fucking chords how many aerosmith songs are actually probably rolling stone songs how many you know like there's so many things how many guns and roses songs were aerosmith songs how many you know i think the one of the other weird things about nirvana is like those are pop songs but they very rarely use standard issue pop progressions there's Mm -hmm. always something a little weird um I mean, in utero in particular, there's stuff that you're like, that's, that's, what's it called? Um, what's the word? Like a Trojan horse or something like those songs have this structure, but then you actually go to play them and you're like, what the fuck is going on? Like who wrote this music? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, so, uh, what was the first, I mean, you talked about playing shows before you even went to go see like REM, like what was the first (laughs) band you did? It wasn't, uh delusion right well i mean sort of was i well when i was in when i was in grade school i had a band called arsenic nice and we were we were rehearsing like the basement of the apartment building i lived in which was like an unfinished it was like you know a shared basement that a whole bunch anyway (laughs) excuse me it was like where the garbage was and shit but um and it was all like fake instruments. Like there was these things called like hot sticks that were like drum, electronic <laughs> drumsticks that made different sounds. And there was like these guitars that were out at the time. Kawasaki made one and some other company made one where you would like press a button and it would play like a very lightly amended version of like a famous Eddie Van Halen riff or a slash riff or something. And we would all just play those in some like New York City, baby, letting you know that we are still here. Um <laughs> There's you have, like you have honking. I have consistent sirens. That's, yeah. that's the sound of LA and versus New York. Yeah, that's one of that's one of the places where we. Um, yeah. But there was, and then they would we would all just play these things, and then we would like write songs. Like I remember, there's a song called "No Light in the Darkness," but it was just like sung over this. I mean, it was kind of like an art project in a weird way. Cause like none of the music made any sense together. You're pressing buttons on toys effectively and then singing over it. Yeah. Delusion was the first band where it was like we were playing instruments and or playing instruments and writing songs. Like it was fucking, we were 12, 13, but um, that was the band. Yeah. And then that was the first band that came in. Like, you know, we played at the uh, Monsignor Farrell super dance on Staten Island and we did five songs. I was 14. We did five songs. We did new wave poly. Nice. Uh, We did, um, plush by stone temple pilots okay we did um two original songs i was singing and playing guitar on some things oh we did mr brownstone by guns and roses we did and we did uh two original songs mind fucked and why were the two songs and this kid came up at that show who was two years older than me and was like you need a bass player you don't have it was me it was two guitars and a drummer and sometimes just one guitar and a drummer and me singing and so he joined our band and that was our band till me and the drummer and the bassist stayed a band for from 1994 to 2001 
And that became Miracle of 86. And then we yeah. switched drummers and added a guitarist. And that was the miracle until it ended. So Delusion kind of became Miracle of 86 right. uh, in like 1998. Because I know so there's, the first that, band, there's yeah. that seven inch that just you guys changed the the cover art for it. But I think the seven inch still says Delusion. But like it, the, the actual cover. Oh, 100%. Yeah, they Miracle were. Miracle of 86. There were. There were there was a delusion seven inch, a delusion two delusion demo tapes, and then yeah, then it became Miracle of eighty six. I want to say I think maybe that's all the music we released under that name that between like nineteen ninety four and ninety eight or something. But yeah, that was my first band. Became the band I was in. It's incredible for for ten years. Uh, Did, until, uh, yeah, for all those recordings, were they like? home were they like home recordings or did you know what we was went the first into, time you went to a studio we went into a studio uh on staten island i cannot remember the name of it i remember my girlfriend bridget francis was with me and the band we did a five song recording i think live like mm-hmm. I think we just set up in a room and, and I, we did some overdubs. There's some like feedbacky, like whale sound things in one of the songs, which is just me like getting shitty feedback. And I think that the dude that was the engineer, what I remember is like a guy showed up in the middle of the session and they both disappeared for a little while. And I'm fairly certain he like went in the other room and like did a bunch of coke. We were kids. We were like 14, 15. And he like came out and was pretty 15. I would have been. And he was pretty like, that's his attitude like, clearly changed yeah a hundred percent he was also kind of like let's try to do some like weird feedback stuff and i was like now in retrospect i'm like this motherfucker was high out of his mind but um <laughs> that was the first studio and then there was a studio in not far from where i live now in like bensonhurst brooklyn that we went back and did a couple of recordings in when i was like 16 it became like demo tapes and actually the song that became the first time the miracle of 86 name was used was on the deep elm records emo diaries volume two okay i was 17 or 18 but that was the last that the last song on volume two is a song called teenage unity song and we recorded that as a delusion song in this place in bensonhurst but yeah the first studios were um staten island bensonhurst i yeah we recorded a but another place in staten island and one of them where I started to make my own solo music, which was also around 18 was like, they were like multi-track recording situations. It's not like home recording. Like we have, they had like, you know, eight track mixing boards and a dat fucking, you know, it was, it was a little bit more gear intensive in a weird way, like a home yeah. recording situation, but it wasn't like my four track. It was like somebody who actually knew what they were doing and had some better gear. Those were also like people's basements in Staten Island, but who had like made their basement a recording studio or whatever. So right. yeah, South Brooklyn and Staten Island. Did you find yourself uh, like loving the recording experience? Like, did you always enjoy it? I think I, I, th- I think I enjoyed it. I think I've always have had some amount of anxiety about like fucking up, making a mistake, uh, not getting the thing, having something happen with my voice. Like I always think I've been vaguely aware of those kinds of things, but also I know there have been moments where like to whatever degree of capacity and um, what's it called capability I had in any given developmental moment. I very distinctly remember moments where you would like hear it back out of the speakers and you would be like, Oh my God. Like like there was that I remember from as early as like really being like, holy shit, like 
that's our band. Or like there was an acoustic song the first time I was encouraged to like make solo music that I was like, oh, that sounds really pretty. You know, like that, like hearing it come out instead of hearing it come out was mm. different, you know? Um, this may not be visual, but you know, you know what I, it, what I was doing there was like out, coming back at you rather than coming out of you. Right. Um, but I do, I, and I do love, I, I've increasingly grown to love even more and more the act of discovery. Um, there's, there's moments that I can find very frustrating, uh, and if I feel like I can't get, but, but I've also tried to like, let go of some of that and trust things, things usually get to where they need to get to. And also not to sound too whatever, but it's like, whatever a thing ends up being is whatever you are capable of making it be at any given time. There's kind of no point in being like, I wish I'd gone back. And it's like, well, you didn't have that idea then. Or you didn't have that vocal capacity then, or you didn't have that ability as a, an arranger yet, or like whatever thing didn't happen, didn't happen because it wasn't yours yet. So to go back and I wish I could change the way I sang on my records kind of up until almost like, if not put your ghost to rest, maybe even brother's blood, but, but that's how I sang for a certain length of time, whether it was self-consciousness, whether it was drinking, whether it was not really knowing the instrument yet. I was not somebody that arrived at 18 and had like all of the tools fully developed. And thank God for that. Cause I still get to develop new tools, but I definitely know there's stuff I listen back to and I'm like that other people love that. Yeah. I'm like, I can't stand the way my fucking voice sounds on that record, but I love the songs and I am charmed by what we made with what we had, you right. know? And then there's no, it's like, yeah, okay. It would be cool to go back and make, the music you made when you were 20 with the things you know and can do at 40, but also would it, we would make it a totally different thing, you know? Right. And anyway, Maybe you wouldn't connect with people who were a little younger or the same age as you at that time too. A hundred percent. Your influences were, were being shown through at that time for what you were listening to at that time and all of those. Yes. Things. And your abilities are your abilities. Like there's a certain, like you can't, you can't sing or perform like a person who's been singing and performing for 29 years when you've been doing it for four years right. or something like that, you know? Yes. So what was the first tour that you ever did? Was that with delusion or was it miracle of 86? I would, I, mm, mm, miracle of 86. Probably. I didn't really tour tour until, so I, I went to college in New York. I went to a school called Fordham and I went to a campus in Lincoln center and excuse me, I didn't, I finished my studies like in three and a half years instead of four. So I had like that last semester before graduation where I was not in school. And so I went on tour that, that semester and I, I was playing shows in New York and we'd done some regional stuff, I guess, as far away as like DC, Virginia, Boston, West Pennsylvania, stuff like that, but pretty, pretty Northeast centric. I don't yeah. even know if the band had ever played further away than, than those, those places. I think we got some random college gig once in Iowa that we like drove out to, but anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So January of 2001 miracle of 86 did a tour through Canada with a band that was on Sonic Onion Records up there called Sinclair. Okay. And they were a Toronto band. And yeah, we toured three weeks with them. I think that was the first 
tour we ever did that was more than like four days long or something. Um, and what a grueling place to do it. Touring Canada oh, dude, it was, is no joke. It was no joke, which is kind of an, I think it's in a, in a weird way. It was kind of a wonderful thing to yeah. be like, you, you, there was no, like, if you love that, you're probably suited to do it. But I was, that was also like, I always thought, cause I also used to drink a lot and I, and, and other things. And I always, and also the way I sing, which might sound as, and I know, you know, from this, but it might sound counterintuitive cause I, I guess maybe there's aspects of my voice that sometimes sound on a spectrum of what someone might think is soft or even pretty sometimes. Right. But for me, I, I I don't have access to like some Tom Yorkian head voice where falsetto just comes naturally and I'm floating around in the ether. Like it's, it's, there's a lot of, there's some grit and some gristle and I like to raise my voice when appropriate. And so, um, I always thought like I was going to go on tour and get into three shows and just lose my voice. And that would be, that would be the answer to like, can you do this for a living? I don't even know if I thought about it for a living. Just like, can you really do this? Right. And, um, I, that tour, I lost my voice after the second show. And then it like came back for the fourth show. And I, something happened and I was like, Oh, there's a way you can like do this where you can figure it out. Um, and that was my, but, but I mean, dude, it was the first night we played Toronto. The second night we played a town that was like X hours, six, maybe five hours away called Sudbury. And then the third show was like a 14 hour drive overnight to play at a place called Thunder Bay. And yeah. overnight in January, like oh, so everyone dangerous. was and uh, so dangerous, like, you know, snow, uh, one lane highways, hugging mountains, and you don't fucking know what you're doing. And I remember the promoter in Sudbury before he left being like, be really careful. It's not deer, it's elk. You need oh. to, uh, a moose, excuse but me. Yeah, like moose, you yeah. need to, and, um, seeing bears and shit cross <laughs> the road, like as we got out West and, um, I remember though, we, we all went to bed, went to bed like eight in the morning or seven in the morning. I stopped the van in a parking lot outside of a big lot store somewhere in, you know, between halfway between Sudbury and Thunder Bay. And like, we all closed our eyes and like a couple hours later, a few of us woke up and like the whole van had gotten sick in Cause it was fucking, yeah. 12 degrees outside or something. Yeah. And it's like you're in a van with your, cl all of your clothes on and your jacket. And then like woke each up. Other's air. <laughs> yes. Kept going to the, and went to the show. And anyway, that's just to say that tour was both like a flat tire the third day or something, changing it on the side of the trans Canada highway or whatever it is. If you come away from that tour and you're like, that was fun. Then you probably want to do it. Um, and then the first solo tour I did was two months after that. I went to to England for Whoa. a week. And that was when I was with Immigrant Son, hardcore label from upstate New York. And he put out my Circle Gets the Square CD. And he was like, you want to go to, I have this band Billion Dollar Mission from Norway. And they were going to tour the UK. And he was like, you could open the shows acoustic and like sitting in there like, conversion convert what what's that called conversion van but but like with like the drummer's tom floor tom on my lap like oh that was God. like and that was so within three months i had done like the first miracle tour and a first solo tour and then i didn't really tour tour like the way we end up touring yeah probably till like 2000 
five, six. Okay. Like I did tours in between then, but it was not, it wasn't easy for me to actually get on tour for a while. It was kind of, I, a lot of people that, I don't know, the, between the college thing and some more, like I was, you know, making a living other ways in New York, trying to like do music whenever I could. And it was, I had friends that started touring, they were like 17, but I was not one of those people. I kind of was probably 24 before it was like really what I was doing all the time. And anyway, but yeah, yeah. first one was, I was 21. Yeah. First one was then. Oh man. Uh, so I have a couple very nerdy for me questions that I was thinking hit, about. Hit me. So yeah. the first song that I ever heard from the Miracle of 86 was yeah. on an immigrant son comp. And yep. it was a version of uh dance dance revolution. That wasn't the version that was on uh, the LP. Um, wow. Every famous last word LP. It's a different recording of it. And you're looking at me like you don't realize that. So I'm I want you to, I kind of want you to, if you ever find it again, if you have access yeah. to it in your library, I would love to hear it. Cause I wonder if it was a demo. It might've been a demo. Cause I remember when I then got the every famous last word record, I was like, Oh sick. This song is on here. And I heard, I was like, this song, this is a different recording. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I, what I'm trying to remember is if we did a demo of that song, cause if it was on an immigrant son Calm. Oh, you know what? Dance Dance Revolution was something we were playing. <coughs> Excuse me. Got fr a frog in my throat. Something wow. we were playing. Um, I think on that. Oh, yeah. We had written some of those, a couple of those songs that ended up on Every Famous Last Word. One or two were like in the mix when our drummer was still this guy, Joey Martin, that I'd known mm -hmm. since I was in seventh grade. Mm -hmm. And I think he did that Canada tour with us. And that was kind of the last thing he did. That was kind of where we yeah parted company after that but um we must have recorded a version of that song with him if immigrant okay. son had it because that yeah. would have been that time frame because that record came out with lakeshore records which is the next question i have for yeah. you yeah like, hit me <clears throat> i know lakeshore as a as a record company that puts out a lot of soundtracks yes like which is i think now what they kind of like exclusively do yeah that's i mean that's so I knew that that record had come out with a, a different label than, um, who, you know, Immigrant Son and, and who he'd been previously working with. And I was like, like when I was doing the research, I was like, who is that with? And I, looked, I was like, Lakeshore. Well, so, so go ahead. That, I don't want to jump the question. No. So, no, I mean, the question I guess kind of is, is like, how did that relationship start? And like, what was that experience like? So Were what I don't. A major? No. No. What I don't fully remember is. Our guy, there were two people there. This guy, Brian McNellis, who was the lawyer and who still is affiliated with whatever they are now and who I, I, I like a lot. He's a, yeah. he's a, he's in my estimation, you know, one of the few pretty good ones, but he, yeah. uh, and this guy, Skip Williamson. And I want to say he was, and he also was good to us. I want to say he was like the A&R. And so that was a period of time though, where they had a band called I don't know if it was the bells or the frames or it was something like that. And it ended up being the dude who makes the CNC drums, Jake, oh, not the dad, the kid, not Jay. Is it? No, 
my brain is like shorting, the con- okay. what's it called? Conflating a few different things. The dude who makes CNC drums was in a band that Miracle was label mates with on Lakeshore. Also, Granddaddy had put out something with Lakeshore before they signed to V2. Interesting. So they had this little moment where they were trying to like put out bands and be yeah. like, have like a little indie rock presence. And the Granddaddy thing for us was like, oh, that's cool. We like them. They were there. That. Um, that that makes it at least like 50% more interesting that they had done something with like a band we thought were that kind of credible and um and and cool and so i don't remember though how they came into the frame i don't know if that was like my then manager john matheson or if it was like a south by southwest thing or if it was like whatever it was right all of a sudden this label was around and we knew they were connected to the film company and we knew that there was a potentiality they could like put some of the songs on soundtracks and stuff. And also they had some infrastructure, they had some distribution they had and miracle wasn't like being, even though we were playing shows with lots of different kinds of bands. Cause that was a weird moment too, where like we were in, we were in Brooklyn and Staten Island. And like at that moment, what's happening is like, the strokes, yeah, yeah, yeah's thing, the the LCD thing, we didn't really fit there. But then also what was happening was like on Long Island, the like Taking Back Sunday brand new. It was like post um silent majority, and that's a glass jar. It was like this 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 thing was starting to happen there. We kind of fit there, but we didn't like really fit there either. And so we were kind of playing shows with like all these bands, all these kinds of bands. There was a funny story about Miracle where we were headlining a mercury lounge show Uh and this guy who booked the mercury lounge ryan um who he calls me one day and he's like hey do you what do you think about for that show uh there's a band i'm managing that i would like to open the show this band the strokes and i was like um if you think that's good totally i have no i don't care i was i know nothing i'm 21 years old um and then he called me like a week later. This is real. A week yeah. later. And he was like, oh, uh, they're not going to do that show. We we actually, some stuff's going on with that band. And we put up a show at Bowery Ballroom and it sold out. And I was like, no, then they are not going to do that show. <laughs> and that was the last time my career and the Strokes career intersected in any way. It was like a moment where it was like not a couple ships in the night. It was like a steamliner and like something that Elon Musk would fly into space or whatever. But um. Anyway, but so yeah, and then and then I remember, but it wasn't like Miracle was being snapped up by like uh, either like um, whatever rock and roll. Like I remember Miracle got like you know an audience with Matador at some point where we were wow. like talking to them, but it didn't go anywhere. And I, similarly, like it wasn't like Vagrant was making us offers on that side of it either. Miracle was kind of a regional concern that a lot of bands, a lot of bands liked our band. We were starting to get some kind of traction and percolation, but it wasn't really like, you know, going, it wasn't like it was going for some of those other acts. It was a right. lot more gradual. And and so when Lakeshore showed up, it was like infrastructure and they did. I mean, they facilitated, we did our first US tour was like fucking four months before the band broke up. We like toured with Sorry About Dresden, that Saddle Creek band. Oh, wow. Um, yeah summer of 2003 and we did shows with like earlier that year we did shows with cursive we did shows with like desaparisados rilo kylie and that's the thing where like the saddle creek thing at that time that if you think about it sort of is the midpoint between like Those indie rock worlds, and emo. yes and uh i think we sort of made sense with them but also like 
we didn't, we weren't there. We weren't from from there. Yeah. Yeah. And so we had, we did play with a lot of those bands once or twice and we toured with Sorry About Dresden and we got treated really well when we went to Omaha, but it wasn't like, I kind of always felt, and now with 18 years of hindsight that like that sort of was the thing we made. We didn't, because it wasn't like Miracle made sense with the shins, right? but it also wasn't like Miracle made sense with like, I don't know, panic at the disco either. Not to shit on, I'm, that's not, no, that's I know no, what you're saying. I, there's no anything attached to that besides just like, we didn't really sound enough like either to fully make sense with either, if that makes sense, totally. which then translates into my solo life as well for a while. But anyway, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Simple question, simple I, answer. I, First I, tour. I loved all of that. I, I love that. Thank you for answering all of those questions. I really appreciate it. Um, I mean, I certainly can talk, Jeremy. That's one yeah, <laughs> curse that I have. Uh, there's so many other things. I mean, we're already we're already an hour 20 in. And, and uh, if anything, I feel like this is just giving me an excuse to bug you to come back to go a little further into stuff. But um, whenever you want. What, uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask about one thing, which was um, it seems like at least with a lot of the solo records that you recorded them. It looks like you've given you're given a lot of producer credits. Um, mm. for like a lot of the early stuff, like the make the clocks move, um, and then split the country and stuff. But then you signed to Capitol and you get to do, put your ghost to rest with Rob Schnapp and Rob Schnapp responsible for Elliot Smith records. Like mm-hmm. you and I, I don't think you and I had ever talked about that. Like what was, how was that for you all of a sudden getting to go work with this guy who obviously worked with Elliot Smith and a lot of people that I'm sure you were fans of. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, certainly uh, th- he's done a lot of stuff with a lot, you know, it's like, you're also like, Oh fuck. He made like mellow gold. That's kind of right. crazy. I forget about that. Like, and, and he mixed the first Foo Fighters record, which for me is like, that's the best Foo Fighters record. Um, and guided by voices and a whole bunch of other stuff. But Elliot to me is, and I know we, but Elliot for me was, was like, the Beatles or something like right. that. That's, that's like, to me, like, evergreen in its uh generationally good he was generationally good i don't think there's very many people who have been that good but mm-hmm. um so when and i mean and also with the early records like you know make the clocks move and it's almost like i know there was a record before that but i kind of always think about it's almost like things kind of really started with make the clocks move right. in a way um with clocks and split the country we did, um, there was me, Brocco and Skinner, you know, and it was, and, and, and so it was, they were, they produced those records and I was part of producing them too, but they were certainly like outside of my brain, making suggestions, making totally. But when we went to Schnaff, that was a different everything because there was a very clear sense that that was like, that wasn't like these two guys that I was making music with in like basements or, or in a studio or, or modest studio in Williamsburg. This was like when the Capitol thing happened, all of which in retrospect seemed like such a fucking crazy lark, like something that was like, um, you know, in Indiana Jones, when he like gets in as the door is just about to close, like I'm sort of feel like I was one of the last people like me that got a deal like that from a place like that. And I always at the time and I, I recognize like I don't give a fuck. There's no like reason to. um, I was not somebody who was like strutting around in those environments like fuck. Yeah. Like I was definitely like, what are we doing here? Like this is insane. But I also was like, 
We're recording in Capitol Studio B where the Beach Boys and Frank Sinatra and <laughs> fucking Beatles, you know, all you know, that's yeah. cool. We're at and so with Schnaff, what happened was that the AR guy at Capitol, Dan McCarroll, um, and Dan, this is all nuts. You might know Jonathan. Do you know Jonathan Daniel? Name is familiar. So he's a manager, that company Crush, and they manage like a bunch. Yeah. And so he, at that point, just had a publishing thing. And he was working with Fallout Boy and bands like that. But he was really working with like Butch Walker and people like that. And he Mm -hmm. had, he gave me a like very modest publishing deal that was transformative to me. I was literally on unemployment at the time. And he gave me a, a modest publishing deal. And then at CMJ 2004, he brings Dan McCarroll to the Alphabet Lounge on 7th and C. They are two of, I would say, 35 people at this set, 40 people. Play this set, get blackout drunk and do a bunch of cocaine that night. And then the next day, go to the Jacob Javits Center to get my pass to go to CMJ shows. And as I'm walking in, I have the Village Voice. This all sounds like a joke. It's real. This is 2004. I don't have a cell phone yet. And I, I'm hungover and actually like more than hungover, like bleed. Like I woke up, it was one of those mornings where you're like, I'm bleeding from my nose. This is oh. cool. And I like go walking to get this thing. And I walk into this guy. I mean, like literally walk into this guy and he's like, I watched you play last night. And he was very complimentary. And he's like, take my number. I wrote his number on the village voice in the <laughs> margins of the page on the village voice. And it was this guy, Dan McCarroll. I told my manager at the time, John, and he was like, that dude's like one of the heads of EMI publishing and also like a consigliere to Andy Slater who runs Capitol records. Like he is, he has like a dotted line A and R thing with that guy. Yeah. We have to call that guy. If he really said that to you months later, South by Southwest, he comes again. And then a month later, I'm like in the Andy Slater's office with Andy, Dan McCarroll, my manager. And that guy, Ron Lafitte that spoon wrote that song about that was like an A&R guy that kind of tried to kill their career or whatever. Um, and I play these songs and anyway, then I realized like at some point I'm like, they're selling me on, they're going to offer us a record deal. It was all so fucking weird Wait, to so me that any let of me it, pay, let me get a, a clear picture here so like it, you're in the office and you literally had a guitar and played for them yeah i talked to them i played the songs your damned old dad no time flat and keep ringing your bell which were three songs that because at that um we were just about it was a month before we put out split the country oh my god and so i played those three songs which no chorus no repeated lyrics um, swearing. One of them was political. I don't know. And I was drunk. It was one in the afternoon. I was nervous. I got drunk before I went there. And, um, at some point during that meeting, I was like, oh, they're, they were no longer, they were like pitching us. And I like had wow. no poker face. Like I looked at Matheson, my manager. And I remember I, I it took everything I had within my, I was 25 years old, but to not say out loud, like they're going to offer us a deal. Like I was like, you know, like I was like, I couldn't believe it. I, I, to me, it was such house money, all of it. Like there was no way this was happening. Anyway, specific thing. Dan had done, was in a band called the Grays and Dan had played with fucking David Bowie at one point, but he had done some percussive thing for Elliot on some thing you can see on YouTube with John Bryan. That was like, they like Paul Thomas Anderson filmed it. It was going to be a pilot for VH1. And Dan was like a percussionist when Elliot and John did some of the figure eight songs together or whatever. So he knew Rob a little and he was like, who would you want to make this record? And at that time, the only people that I thought of, I was like, 
Rob Schnaff or Mike Mogus. Like that would be, you know, and um, I think it was infinitely, I, I, I know Mike a little bit and I think Mike makes beautiful records and I, and I like him, but I was also like, there was enough points of commonality between what Connor was doing and what I was doing. Yeah. And he was already doing it at a level that was like 2000 times more visible and some, some amount more evolved too. Like I remember meeting that person and being like, holy shit, this dude like really knows what he wants to do. And it was so intimidating because I was like, he was a mess, but he was also like so fucking focused in a way. And I was like, I don't know anybody like that. Like the people around me don't know what the fuck they're doing. And this guy's like really, so Mike would not have, I don't think been the right thing, mm-hmm. but Rob was, I mean, the best thing I got from Capital was Rob. Cause yeah. that's still Rob mixed three songs, five songs. That'll be for three of them on the new record. And Rob's we've made records since he mixed second bad books record. He's mixed between the concrete and clouds. We made bulldoze like me and him have been working together yeah, since. since. Yeah. But more than working together, he's become one of the like, I don't know, three people in the music industry that I implicitly trust and go to for, like, he's like, I, we've become friends and maybe even something like peers. Yeah. But I see him as a mentor and I certainly saw him as a mentor when I was 20 fucking six years old, uh, six months dry making a record in sunset sound studio three, where they'd done like fucking purple rain and, yeah. uh, you know, whatever. And just being like, what am I doing? What is this? Yeah. Fighting with the label about whether I could use my band instead of like the ringers they wanted to bring in. And, um, Mike, I have, I haven't thought about this, but I'm actually curious. Do you, who do you think they wanted you to be like, what, what do you think? Like, like when on the label? Yeah. Like when you're, when you're in that meeting and they're looking at you and you're playing these songs and I can't help but, but like not envision the scene from inside Lewin Davis when he's, when he's. Performing. That's so funny. You talk about that. I just talked about that recently to somebody, how it's like the most accurate when he finishes this beautiful song that stops time. And the F Mary Abraham character is like, I don't see much money in that. It's. It's the it's most. A, it's the best. It's the it's it knocks the wind out of you. The, it's you true. It it's the truth. Um, but like, but so yeah, I'm I'm curious. Like, at that time in that era of music, and and you know, years past Elliot and things like that. Like, did you have any idea? Were they trying to pitch you towards like be like emulating something else, or were they pretty like I want you no, to do you? Whatever else I can say, I. I do not feel like they pressured me in that way. What I do think is it was 2005. The garden state thing had happened. Mm -hmm. The, you know, Connor was a big deal. Death cab was a big deal. Sufian was a big deal. Um, You know, I think that if I had to guess what their thought process was, it was like, cause they didn't, my deal was life transforming for me it was beyond modest for a label that size. It was a pretty, it was a deeply modest deal. Changed my, I I haven't had another job since I got offered that contract besides making music, but it's not because of the money I was offered on that contract. I can tell you that like, and and also for, for them, it was like, you know, a marginal tax write off, whatever that deal was. It was not, but, um, but I think what they probably thought was, this guy really believes in it. I believe in him. 
I like these songs. Um, this is a fairly undeveloped thing, but that, but it has some, there was people who knew it, some people who knew it. So there were some good reviews and stuff. And I think it was like, um, let's take a shot on this and see if he accidentally, if he can somewhat ride in the the slipstream of those things, you know, they weren't going to get Connor at that time. And Death Cab was already somewhere else. And so they were trying, I'm sure there was some mindfulness of like, maybe we can have our own version of something like that. Or because that Garden State thing also kind of intersected with like the hotel cafe core, like a bunch of like singer songwriters that were on that soundtrack and then became like nominally, um, right. you know, people that could sell like the El Rey or the Bowery or, or maybe like you accidentally get, or you accidentally get like a radio song and you have a guy who becomes like James Blunt or something who like accidentally writes like a single that a bunch of people dance to at their weddings. I'm sure there were several potentialities. Mine, I can tell you my like pie in the sky thing was that I was like, maybe I'll get to be like built to spill or Elliot, I guess in, in, in the sense that like, you can be on a major and maybe you can, I mean, to me, it was like, if I was like, if we sell like 50,000 records, I'll think we like won a gold medal at the fucking Olympics. That yeah. seemed like so out of bounds and turned out to be out of bounds. <laughs> but I was like, maybe if we get there, we can just be one of those things that's on a label that like other acts, you're like someone that's like uh, a prestige artist on the label, like the Leonard Cohen thing where Clive Davis says to him, like, I know you're great, Leonard, but I don't know if you're any good. But they kept him around because other people were like, yeah. oh, Leonard Cohen's on there. That's cool. You know yeah, what I or mean? Like someone that you and I both love that I remember when you did the, the rendition of Blue, like just was like everything is in place. This is why Kevin and I have connected. But like Phil Oaks was another person like that. Yeah. Like Electro yeah. was like, was like, we want you to do what you do. Like and yeah, and well, we won't pay you the way we pay Bob Dylan or something no, like that. No, yeah. but but you know you'll get to do. And so that was that was my pie in the sky thing. But the, the Schnaff thing, sorry, I've gotten far afield because it's hard to tell the Capital thing in a concise way. What oh, I no. will say is I was nervous with Rob because one, we had never worked with a producer like that. Two, we had never worked in studios like that. Three, Elliot's my favorite at that time, and especially like and that's like all. the yeah. guy to me. So not to sound like, not to, that's a Marinism. Who are you guys? But not to, but he was like the person for me. Yeah. And so I had a little bit of a thing where I was like, it's funny. I had this moment initially where I was like a little afraid to like play guitar and sing in front of Rob, because in my mind, he had worked with the guy who I thought was the best at arranging, harmonizing, playing his music brain, chord brain, this weird hybrid of McCartney and Harrison and, and, and what's his name? Brian Wilson, but also through the filters of punk rock and indie rock. Like, I was just like, why would I do this in front of this guy? He's heard the best version of this ever. Why would I do it? Right. And at some point when we were recording a song on that record called Brooklyn Boy, and there's like some more for me at that point, intricate guitar stuff that happens. And I was kind of getting really flustered. And he was like, I said it to him, you know? And he was like, but I'm not here to make that record. I'm here to make your record I'm here to hear you. This isn't any other thing. It's this thing. And I kind of like let some water out, uh, you know, uh, the level came down and then singing the first time I've probably told you the story before, but the first time 
we the first song I sang on that record is a song called Go Haunt Someone Else. And I went into the, to do the take. And this was like, let's say a month, three weeks into this session. And I go to go in and that's the other thing. Those records, like it's fucking insane to think of this. Now we took seven weeks to make that record. <laughs> like I don't, but I went to go in and he was like, uh, oh, very casually. He's like, oh, before you go, don't do that goat boy shit uh, when you go in, just sing. And I was like, excuse me? And he was like, a thing where you like waver around the note because you like either are self-conscious about the voice you actually have or you're afraid you're going to be pitchy or something. It's like everyone's doing this right now. Just just sing. Yeah. And I was like, this motherfucker. Like I was so – and then I went in and I did seven takes of the song where I just sang. And then when I went back in, he just picked like the third or fourth one and played yeah. it and just listened. And then he just turned to me at one point and went, see, you have a nice voice. And I was like, and it really was this moment where I was like, I couldn't, it sounded, it did sound, I, I was like, I, I don't know whatever nerves or whatever self-conscious self, but I was like, like I'm affect that was, but I yeah. was like, oh, it does sound nice. And yeah. in the 15 years since then, that only happens to me now if I'm like really hyper energized and it's like a physiological thing or if I like, that's not a thing I go to anymore to like um, compensate for something. And right. I could tell you 300 stories like that about him, but I was initially very nervous and it actually in retrospect ended up being the best thing that came from that. Ex Rob is the Rob to me. It's almost like I'm not like a cosmic interventionist architecture architect guy that thinks people, you know, someone's up there like pulling strings, but I do almost feel like the reason I got the, to do the capital thing was to actually get Rob. That was right. like the, you know, so yeah. The, the stars aligned to have that happen. Yes. Uh, I, I've, I've only, I've met him briefly. My, uh, my friends in the band Angel Dust, they've been working with him mm. and, um, and I went by the studio like sometime last year and, uh, he was in, in the room uh like working with the singer of the band while everyone else is outside i was hanging out with everyone else and then he he came out and i just and i was like trying to gauge his personality because he seemed very kind of like a focused sort of stoic -y sort of person and if, i just i just let loose i was like hey i'm gonna punish you for two seconds i really appreciate all the records you've done blah 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 and he was just and he was very modest and was like uh thanks appreciate that yeah then, yeah that sounds uh, right so some of the guys in Angel Dust uh, at that time, especially is like members of the band Turnstile. And, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. And so like we're all, you know, we're all friends and stuff. And like the guitar player, Pat, uh, he just looks at Rob and he was like, he means it. <laughs> he was like, that's he was like, so good. He's like, you might have someone punish you here and there. He was like, but I need to let you know that this guy, he's like, this, this guy's at least punishing you from, from a real place. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was a very sweet kind of funny moment. He was like very kind. And we, we oh, I love cool, that. We had a cool yeah, conversation. He, oh, well, if I, if you can stomach it, I won't drone. I can tell you some other, or another very quick one that indicates yeah. what you're talking about. There was a thing that I played a show opening for an artist called Corinne Bailey Ray. We did a tour together in 2006 and I was, I was, um, they did a thing at the now deceased, uh, house of blues on sunset Boulevard and upstairs, they, the, the head, the president of Capitol, Andy Slater got all of these music supervisors and I had to, I would, the foundation room, that's what it was called. And yeah. I went up afterwards and he was like, I'm going to introduce you. And then, you know, you go around and say hi to people, but you know, I got this. And he like stood up and he's like, um, and like people like come to attention and he's like, 
Bob Dylan, Elvis Costello, Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen. And then he puts his arm around me and he goes, Kevin Devine. Oh my God. And I, of course, and they all go like, and I'm like, oh my God. And I like want to shrink, but also there's that guy in you somewhere that goes, maybe. Right. Maybe. And the next day I went to Rob and I was like, man, this thing happened last night. And I was kind of telling him in this way, like, this is so fucking stupid. But he, I tell him the story and he's just looking at me. Yeah. Unbroken eye contact. (laughs) Right. And I finished the story and he goes, like, it takes a beat and like nods and he goes, what an asshole. (laughs) And they're friends by like, they're, they're, but you know, but, but, and he just looked at me and he was just like, just do your work and everything else will be whatever everything else will be. Oh, that's brilliant. It's the only truth. It's the most true thing I think you could say about a life in this stuff. Yeah. I don't buy the whole, like I make my destiny. It's like, you do the work and everything else is subject to so much more than you have any fucking, not only control over, but even awareness of. And that was, and I remember it was like someone throwing a bucket of ice water, but I was like, yeah, right. Okay. And that was, that's as close to what's it called? Like operating system. (laughs) If someone was to ask me like, what is it that you do? I'd be like, I try to do the work and let the rest be the rest. Um, and, uh, I think if I had made that record with a different person, I might have not, certainly, I don't know if I'd still be fucking talking to him 16 years later, but I don't know if I would have also gotten the kind of like, I needed some like help, like, um, on a like, um, human level navigating that period of time. Cause it was pretty heady to me right. and he was the right steward. So anyway, yes, Rob is like, that. uh, Thank you. thanks for sharing all that. I really do appreciate it. That that was, was, I, I, those are two incredible stories. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, well, fuck. I, I mean, I guess I could hit you with the last question, which is, which I like to ask everybody, but I am going to demand that you come back at some point. Cause this is I, I would whenever you yeah. want. Yeah. I love talking to you, whether it's in front of microphones or not. So yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess before I say, I uh, just the thought occurred to me. Uh, you randomly had just uh, it was a few. It was probably at this point, God, like seven months ago or something. But I remember I was just getting home from walking my dog, and and I saw that you were calling. I was like, it's some. You know, sometimes you can see a call, and you're like, this, clearly this is a butt dial. Like this is this. Oh yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And I was, I was like, what's up? And you were just like, yeah, I was just thinking about you. I wanted to call and check in, and I, and, <laughs> and that was a nice reminder moment that. Uh, as much as I try to do that myself with certain people, like it was a nice, like it's nice when other, you know, it's just nice when those things happen. Mm. I just wanted to say, I appreciated that. Especially oh, I love that. Last year. Yeah. And, and um, I, you know, it's funny because uh, I don't, sometimes I wish I, I, sometimes I have unrealistic, unrealistic expectations of how much time and energy any of us actually has. Like, I think I'm supposed to be doing stuff like that all the time because I think of everybody all the time but we can't always be in connection. So I'm sure that was a moment where I was just, I thought it and you know, every once in a while you have that moment where you're like, just fucking do it, just right. do it, you know? And, um, and you never regret I'm it glad. when you do. Cause it's always, no, you never regret it when you do. That is absolutely true. Yes. Yeah. So uh, thank you for that. I'm glad. No, thank you. All right. So Kevin, that's when me. was the first time that you felt like you were doing the thing that you had been working so hard towards? 
I was thinking about this because I, I, there's like a way you could, and I'm not going to, but there's like, obviously there's a way you could answer. There's so many gradations, right? Where you could be like a time when you got to play X venue or you got to play X venue as your own show, like headlining X venue or some of the stuff we've already spent some time talking about, about, but I really think, and it might sound so to me, I feel like I've never had a clear cut. Like, you know, when people say like, I didn't have a plan B, mm-hmm. I don't even know if I had a plan A because it wasn't that I was like, oh, I'm going to become a rock star or, oh, I'm going to become a celebrity musician or, oh, I'm going to make a a living. It was really more that I was like, well, Super Chunk seems to like only be in a band. And there's a guy in my professional infrastructure who said to me once in a way that was kind of meant to be a challenge. He was like, you act like Nirvana and Bob Dylan and REM like never played bigger venues than the Bowery Ballroom. I'm like, well, because in my head, maybe I kind of wish they didn't ever play bigger rooms in those places for various reasons. Why do I bring any of that up to answer your question? It's to say, I really authentically can draw a breadcrumb trail from like that first dance that Miracle of 80s Delusion played to like sitting here with you. It's in a weird way. It feels like this compressed experience. That's all the same thing. Like that dance is the same as Lollapalooza or Coachella or Webster Hall or Bowery Ballroom or doing the first seven inch on Staten Island with 1205 records is the same as being in the fucking guy from Capitol's office. It's all just like extensions. To me, the real thing was like, imagine you wrote a song that other people wanted to play with you like liked it enough that they wanted to play it with you. And then you guys wrote enough of them that you could get up and play them in front of other people. And some amount of those other people would be like, Oh, that's cool. Let's can, we'll come back the next time you do that. I know that sounds like bullshit, but that's really about as far as my brain has ever been allowed to go with it. That thing has swollen or contracted or, you know what I'm saying? So in a way, I really authentically feel like the answer, the the best answer is like maybe that first time, May 7th, 1994, that our band got to play at the fucking Rock Palace on Staten Island with lights and a PA and other bands and like 50 kids in in a room that were like watching us play. Because... It's all just been iterations of that from that point forward. And that point, I've never been more nervous, maybe for when I was, when I got married, (laughs) that was a different kind of nerves. And for different reasons, I was so nervous because I was like, we're going to play a club, like a venue just playing a venue with a name and with a stage that faced people yeah all of a sudden put us in lineage with all of like anything i'd ever read about movie i'd seen aria like any concert i was like we're gonna play a show like in (laughs) front of so in a way i know that the so much of the work has been the 28 years since then but there's a sense that like that was where i was really that for me was really when it was like, we did it. 
like we got up, we wrote songs and we got up. And so everything since then has been like, how do we keep doing it? And whether it's like a rec center in Dendermond, Belgium, solo in 2014 in front of 22 people, or it's like fucking riot fest or, you know what, like whatever the thing is, it's just like, every time I do that, I'm reminded, like, I've been able to have a life in this thing that was totally inconceivable to me the minute before we did that first show. And sometimes still like, there's still times where I'm like, someone's going to show up at some point and be like, all right, that's enough. You know what I mean? Like you're done. And maybe that will happen through various forces, majeure or deus ex machina. I don't know, but um, I hope that doesn't sound like too hallmark card. No, it's not. It's a great answer. It's a, and that's a wonderful, good mental health way to look at everything too. So I, I applaud you. A lot of work, a lot of work. And some days, trust me, you can find me on a day where I don't think any of that. And I'm just like, fuck this, fuck me, fuck everybody. (laughs) But, but generally speaking, uh, yeah. Um, Kevin, I am so excited that you, uh, you agreed to play a a song for this episode. It's a Christmas episode. This is coming out on the uh, 22nd, just days before Christmas. And, um, you have a song that perfectly fits the uh, the mood and the uh, maybe not so much the mood, but the the season. So I had the audacity at the age of twenty two to write a Christmas song. Yeah, and uh, and and yeah, it's my was it was my father's favorite of my songs, so I play it and think of him. So uh, thank you, I'm, I'm so excited. Yeah, thank you for for letting me do it. It's always like a little bit like you're really gonna do this, and then I'm like, let yourself do it, you son of a bitch. Come on, all right. <laughs> So what if it's freezing I'm awake and I'm happy The sun's steepling its shards on my floor I drag my feet to the shower And I hear someone singing I keep the lights off while the water gets warm I knot up my tie and toss books in a school bag to keep my priorities straight. So I can sleepwalk through work like the outpatient program I don't buy but go to anyway. At some point I'll call you and I'll tell you I miss you and you are the point of my And my face will get flushed and my throat will choke up when you tell me that you feel the same. So I have been thinking of splitting up Christmas to see everyone I'd like to see. And first on that list, you're the lotto I hit. You're the star at the top of the tree You're the star at the top of the tree I have been thinking 
thinking of splitting up Christmas to see everyone I'd like to see. First on that list, you're the lotto I hit. You're the star at the top of the tree. And I have been feeling it's good for a reason, my friends and my family. You all are my backbone. You keep me balanced and settled. And I'm in debt to you all endlessly. Yeah, I'm in debt to you all endlessly. So tonight I will call you and try to say thank you for being the sun on my face. I know the world's almost over, but you make it seem better. So I hope for you I do the same. Hear it okay? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Like people in the foundation room. Oh my god, it's been so long since I since I've listened. Man, I, it brought me back in so many different ways. That song has been That's on a mixtape or two, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> no higher honor. There's no higher honor than that. Uh, Kevin, I adore you. Thank you so much for this. This has been a blast. I feel the same. Thank you. Thank you for doing it with me. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Kevin for coming on. Thank you for listening. And a reminder, if you would like to watch Kevin perform Splitting Up Christmas on video, subscribe to the Patreon. Check it out there. Also, there's a bonus episode where Kevin answers questions that were submitted by subscribers. All available now. Patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. Happy holidays. Stay safe. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.